Welcome to the Boom Clap Podcast. Today, we have a great conversation for you. We have Mike Glover of Fieldcraft Survival on with us today. Mike spent 18 years in the U.S. Army. He served in special forces. He's an expert in counterterrorism, security, and crisis management operations. And like I said, CEO of Fieldcraft Survival. Super great conversation. I'm not going to go into all the details here, but we talk about military. We talk about his history in the military and kind of this burning question in both Cecily and I's mind, how we support military, how we are thankful for their service when we also have this feeling about our government is corrupt. Um, Governments, both in the USA and Canada, but specifically we're talking about America today. Um, And then, of course, we get into preparedness because how could we have Mike Glover on and not talk to him about preparedness? We know all of you would be highly disappointed in us if we didn't. (laughs) And he did not disappoint. The conversation was excellent. So really excited for you guys to hear from him. We'll get into it now. Hi, Mike. We are happy to have you on here with us finally today after some technical difficulties and trouble scheduling. You're so gracious to join us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, So just to start here, can you just give a little bit of your background so our listeners know where you're coming from and um, your history, military history and things like that? Yeah. So I I spent uh, almost 20 years in the military um, from 17 years old, 20 years um, of army experience in the infantry and also in special forces. Um, I worked for the CIA for three years as a global response staff officer in GRS, um, where I protected case officers overseas, um, did a lot of those rotations back and forth, and then eventually stepped out of both of those positions and decided to run a company uh, called Philcraft Survival, which I started uh, almost 10 years ago now, probably eight, nine years ago. Okay. That's awesome. So... That's obviously a super interesting history, not not the kind of history that many people can claim. So I'm super curious, what led you to decide to step out of all of that and start your own business? So I, I personally, for me, it was like I wanted to get out of the government and I, I spent so much time deploying overseas. And I think every year since 2004, I had deployed overseas and, and done mm-hmm. something that pulled me away from everything that I had. So part of it was selfishly, I wanted to start a family. And part of it was, um, I had always had the idea of starting my own business. I wasn't really sure on what I was going to do, but I knew that it was something that eventually I wanted to transition into. Okay. Yeah. I don't think it's selfish to want to start a family. I think that's a good thing, but yeah. So the reason I don't know, we could have had you on for a bunch of reasons. But the main reason that spurred me to ask you on was, I guess, how do we support and honor military families? We'll talk about preparedness eventually, I think, because everybody wants to hear that. But um, how do we support and honor military families well without supporting these endless wars themselves? I guess like every Memorial Day, Veterans Day, Fourth of July, I I'm thankful to be an American and I thank veterans and appreciate the sacrifices people have made. But I have this um, nagging feeling that's getting stronger. Like there's a but that goes along with that, like a caveat, you know, with all of the things happening in our world and how our government operates. So you had posted um, something that really struck a chord with that. You said um, you were curious where the endless and open-ended wars Um, were outlined by our founding fathers and that our founding fathers were totally against fighting unnecessary wars and desired peace in the world. And then you back that up with a few quotes by Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. So I guess, can you just speak to that a little bit? Because I know I'm not the only one feeling this way. Yeah, it's a a conundrum, right? Because if you're a a patriot, freedom-loving American, then you always want to back our service members. But when you see our service members deployed all over the world because uh, there's an administration or there's a, a, a political um, agenda that continues to be involved in chaos across the globe. It, it puts you in a conundrum because you, you, you always want to support the service members just like you support first responders, but there's also a policy element to it that seems deeply uh, untrusting and corrupt in, in my opinion. And so when I was in the military 
in in my time of service, we'll call it the the GWAT, the Global War on Terror era, we had really a defined purpose and we had a September 12th mindset. Like we were united in many ideas as a country on what we needed to accomplish. I mean, I think a lot of that shifted after we find, uh, if after we eventually found in Pakistan, Osama bin Laden. And it's like, that was the error of that conflict turning a new page, except we didn't turn a new page. We continued just to fight and exhaust uh, blood, sweat, and a lot of uh, uh, equity in this thing that continued to go on for years past. And so in my personal opinion, today it's hard for people to trust anything that the government's doing and, and in good faith stand behind troops. When I got out of the military and started my company, I was really supported. And, and people were like, man, that's awesome. You're talking about things that you did because we don't see many special operations guys doing that. And it, it, I was very hesitant to begin with to talk about any of my experiences. But when I realized like it was connecting with people, that was a positive thing. If you came out today and you were a military guy and you did the same thing that I did a decade ago, you would be attacked. I mean, you would be you would be criticized, and you would be attacked for being a bootlicker of the government, a shield for the government, and you should know better. It's like, wow, that mm. there's a disconnect now between society and what the service member experience is. One, as a service member, you are doing a specific job, whether it's saving the teammates that you're surrounded with in a combat zone or a gunfight. Your narrow scope is very specific mm. versus what the political theater and all the things going on above and beyond you. So I would advocate for people to understand, just like with first responders, there's a job that has to be done. And then above that, there is a political disassociation that's taking place that affects a lot of the policy that is driving the operations, but it's outside of a service member's control. I mean, not once in the military, even as a senior, even as a sergeant major in special operations, that the most senior enlisted rank you could be, did I mm-hmm. interact with politicians? There was just a mission. There was a very specific purpose. And then we accomplished that. So I would advocate that all people who are listening to this remember that and always support the service member because they have specific jobs. They have specific roles. And even in national defense, in representing uh, the, the, the national um, position and sovereignty is just as important as everything else. So even just standing in uniform and serving and having that capacity is very important. So I, w- I would hope that people could disassociate the service from the politics okay. and keep them separate. So before... Um like I knew I was going to have you on and things. And I had messaged one of my friends who was in the military that I went to high school with. Like I graduated in 2001 from high school. And so this was the time a lot of the people that I went to school with were enrolling in the National Guard and things because things had been quiet for some time. And then in September, you know, things blew up literally. Mm -hmm. Um, But then they were called into service. But anyways, one of my friends um, went in through the National Guard and ended up staying in the army for quite some time. And I messaged him like, is there any questions that you think are important to ask? And the one that he said, which is similar to what I just asked, but more from the standpoint of how you feel than how we feel as people supporting the military. He said, "Um, how do you reconcile your love for your country in your years of service with the recent apparent collapse of military or our establishment? Yeah, that's a really good question. It, it's it saddens me that that's the case, but it's just the reality. It's something that we have to face, and that has ebbed and flowed throughout history. I, mean, I joined the army in the nineties in a in in garrison military where even in the infantry, because there was nothing going on, and because the political climate was so toxic under Clinton, um, morale was low. So, so personally, my specific job, especially in special operations, was narrow in focus, and it had to do with counterterrorism. It was like kill, capture the bad guy. Very, very clear and concise. That doesn't change for most of the military because their mission is in, in, in counterterrorism, 
or national strategies in defense. So it's like, it's like saying that you don't like the FBI, but the FBI goes after the, the serial pedophile in your backyard. So it's like you stand up and you say, well, I don't, I don't like the FBI. And they just, their task force just rolled up an entire pedophile ring in your neighborhood. Well, Mm. you can't have both. Can you? Well, you can, because there's a bureaucratic relationship above the people who do the job. And that is very political because there's a lot of influence that happens that drives a lot of the policy at the bureaucratic level. So the job nonetheless stays the same. There are still pedophiles, there are still terrorists that need to be rolled up every single day. So if we could just break that down, what I would say is in my job specifically, I didn't have any uh, interest nor interaction with bureaucrats in my profession. I had a very specific job and we did our job and I think we did our job well. And, and, and so I'm okay with, with all the things that I did in service. Like Afghanistan is the perfect model of this. Everybody's really disappointed about what happened in Afghanistan and with our withdrawal. Mm. As a both Afghan and Iraq veteran of war, I saw what we were specifically doing. What we were specifically doing is going after bad guys. So if you believe that we shouldn't have been or should have been in Afghanistan or Iraq, um, that had nothing to do specifically with the guys and the gals job on the ground. So all of the stuff that I did, it's like the terrorists that we went after needed to be go, uh, gone after. And, and, and that's how I feel about it. So I, I'm not mm-hmm. like, if you, if I was in the military right now and people ask me all this all the time, especially young men who want to serve in the military, I tell them if I was in the military right now and you told me to go do a mission, what does that have to do with the politics that you're reading on Twitter? Nothing. It has zero to do with anything. We still need men and women to serve at the tip of the spear and to be willing to go into harm's way to defend and protect our country. If we don't have that, because everybody's so political, so bureaucratic, then we aren't going to have a defense of our nation. And that's part of the issue that we're facing now in retention mm-hmm. and sustainment numbers. We are not keeping soldiers that, that, that are currently serving in, and we're not recruiting and bringing new people in as well. So I think a lot of that um, is above my pay grade, none of my concern. Yes, I'm concerned now as a civilian of what's going on, but the reality is the warfighter doesn't need to be concerned with that because there's a lot of bad guys that need captured or killed, uh, just as in the, in the model that I talked about in the FBI. There's a lot of bad people in our country that need to be rolled up and, and brought to justice. So that's, that's my take on it. It's disappointing. But it's always something that we've dealt with. I dealt with it in my initial enlistment from really E1 to E5. I mean, all through the 90s until September Mm. 11th. That's very helpful the way you laid that out. I mean, so what do you think also as far as you're saying that there's less people... Forgive me, I'm Canadian and I'm not going to get all the proper terminology. Less people joining the military right now. Um, do you think, though, even though you say it's not the warfighter's problem, like politicians do have some responsibility for that, though. And this is my concern is I wonder if this is just going to get progressively worse because of the fact that politicians aren't taking responsibility for the fact that they are creating such disillusionment within the citizens of the country. And also, it seems like the people that create policy are so worried about politics and appearance that they're actually perhaps less likely to go after the bad guys that need kill and capture than they were before. And again, that could be a totally naive question, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, it's a, a really good question. It's, I mean, I mean the, the task organization or, or the hierarchy of organizations in society haven't really changed. I mean, think about like uh, Gladiator or your favorite Roman Empire movie. And like the bureaucrat was like the fat chubby dude in the gown. And then the Spartan was the warrior with a sword. And so that mm. relationship has kind of always been a, a, mm. a way that we look at it. Um, yeah. The biggest concern that you're spot on about is the idea of hesitancy built in a passive bureaucrat. So a, a politician who potentially doesn't want to rock the boat mm-hmm. is not going to be potentially invested in doing things like 
countering terrorism, border security, mm-hmm. going after the bad guys uh, like the cartel. And we already see that. We see that happening yeah. now. Um, but let me give you an example. Obama is a perfect example because I served under Obama. And I remember telling a buddy of mine when I was in special operations, like I was like a senior sniper in special operations. And I was a sergeant first class. So pretty senior ranking guy. And I told him, I was like, if Obama wins, I'm out. I'm not going to be involved in this. Like, I, I, it, it, He seems like he's very politically left-leaning, which means he likely won't be invested in going after the bad guys. Mm. He got in. Um, my enlistment didn't end until six months after he got in. And then all of a sudden, work didn't change. In fact, mm. if you look at the statistics, we actually did more counterterrorism operations mm. and went after bad guys more. But now part of that is the covert nature of special operations where you didn't have to overtly signal or telegraph or talk about it on the platform. So you didn't have to take, there was no attribution Mm. to a political machine and then the terrorism that was being countered. Mm -hmm. That with that being said, when you look at Biden, Biden is on the complete opposite spectrum of what I thought the democratic party would stand for. I mean, typically the Democrats have been very anti-war. They're the mm-hmm. ones who oppose the Iraq invasion, um, this idea of this, these WMDs. With all that being said, it is hard to predict on the spectrum what the agenda or incentives of a bureaucrat are going to be. And from, from that perspective, it is too – one, the system's broke. So there not, needs to be a lot of fixing of the system. And I think every American – and everybody who sees America as a whole, even from Canada uh, or, or abroad, knows that our system is breaking. It's very mm-hmm. fragile. So I think that's the problem set. Overall, as a nation, we need to fix a lot of things. Like term limits uh, need to be something that we need to look at. Age limits, um, that's, there's something that we need to look at. Um, double dipping and the potential conflict of interest between investing and a portfolio behind Boeing or Lockheed Martin mm. or Northrop Grumman, and then also being a politician who works on policy to advocate for that, that's a conflict of interest. So I think those are the sticking points, and that should be our focus. But there's complexity in all of it that we likely could not sort through because it's, like like yeah. I said, it's very complex. Yeah, yeah, the investing in things. When you go in as a politician, you know, not having much of a balance sheet and come out with a net worth you know, in the 1%, that's, that's a, that's trouble, right? That's a problem. So um, you mentioned the movie Gladiator and I was thinking about, I don't know, this, the movie Shooter is one of my favorite movies. I'm sure you've seen it and you probably like watch it. Like I watch hospital movies, like this is dumb and doesn't happen, but I don't know. Anyway, that scene where he's like on the like white tundra and the politician, the fat politician, just like you described is telling Mark Wahlberg, like, you're in or you're out. And like, we can go on TV and say, this is what the war is about, but this is really what's it about, what it's about. And I don't know. I think that a lot of people just feel that scene right now. And you're really describing, you know, in a really good way, how we can support the military still. And the description you gave of like Obama Mm -hmm. and Biden and how they're handling things and how you can't tell Mm -hmm. necessarily what it's going to be like in the military. Um, based on the platform somebody runs on that that's very interesting to think about. So um, I guess, can you also talk to us a bit about the shrinking military and your thoughts on the possibility of a draft? Yeah. A draft is unlikely because I mean, it's more to do with the culture and the military that exists now. Most of the military um, is ran from the joint chiefs position and and a lot of the military, um, if you talk to people that are serving, and even my generation of military, having a force of draftees in any situation, e- even in a time of war, is a bad idea. Now, a better solution to that would be people like myself, who are, just came out of inactive ready reserve. Um, well, likely because of my rank and even my age could go back in and serve in some capacity we have lots of service members that um, obviously transition into being a veteran. There's lots of veterans mm-hmm. who have the skill sets. Instead of starting from scratch and voluntarily, voluntold um, 
people that are coming in and saying, hey, we're going to put you through this uh, recruitment selection process and train you and start from scratch, I think a better option would be taking inactive ready reserve, which is a, a very robust pool of people that are that, that might not even know they are. Like if you served in the military in any term of enlistment, you likely have a four-year minimum obligation in the inactive ready reserve, which means via your contract, you sign for it. There's no obligation to show, to even be earmarked, but you're in that pool. And that that is hundreds of thousands of service members. So that it would be the first line of it. And the second line, I think, should be the veteran status. It, as war demonstrated, having people who are told they're going to serve is a bad precedent. Because especially in frontline positions where people's lives depend on the person's buy-in. My incentive for going in the military was simple. I wanted to fight. I had a fighting spirit because I believed in like protecting, defending. And I was, I thought I was raised um, um, very well by a man who, who raised a boy to be a man. And that was my incentive. It wasn't college. It wasn't, uh, you know, traveling the world. It was fighting. And when I get in and there was no fight, I was disappointed. And in fact, I almost transitioned completely out and said, I'm done because there wasn't a fight. And then the fight kicked off and then I was back in. The men that I served with that were literally standing next to me in gunfights were in the military for the same reason. You want that synergy and you want that bond. You don't want to compromise that. One bad apple of somebody who's been told to be there could could completely destroy the morale and the capability of a fighting force. So I, I think it's a horrible idea. I hope we never get to that point. But with that said, I will also say civil service, not against the idea of potentially um, drafting or uh, drafting is a bad term. Uh, I think opening the doors of opportunity for people to potentially serve in some other capacity, like civil service. A lot of what the military does is backed and logistically supported by civil service, meaning civilians who are working in a government contractual co- uh, capacity. That needs to be done, and sometimes um, be, people need to be, uh, volunteer for that. But I would never tell anybody because of my principles and I, I, ideas about what this whole experiment is. I, I would never want to tell anybody to do anything that way. Mm, okay, that's good. Man, like sometimes we have people on and it's a conversation and this is a straight interview because I don't know anything about what you have done. Like I have no ability to. And you just have this background that allows us to ask questions that all of our listeners want to know about. So I really appreciate you being on with us. Um, One thing you said on social media recently that I want to address too, you said, I love how the administration is saying we don't want war with Iran. We're... we are at war with Iran and we're the only ones that don't know about it. <laughs> so I I have a lot of like I have five combat rotations to Iraq. And every rotation was in special operations and every rotation in some way we were fighting Iranian proxies. So unless you you were part of that engagement with in this case the Shias, because they were Iranian-backed. Um, Mahdi militia men were specifically backed and provided support, training, and capability, more, more equipment. That equipment was having a direct effect on American lives, coalition lives. We are losing more men, more service members because of that increased capability. Um, Mokhtar al-Sadr, which is at the time, head of the Mahdi militia, who is based out of Sadr City, was providing the support via Iran. And because it was too political of a circumstance, we pulled him off the target deck. We said, we can't specifically target this person even more, even though he's like the prime suspect behind all of this terrorism that is directly killing Americans. Um, One of my rotations... Uh, when I came into the uh, theater, we had just lost three Navy SEALs that were killed by an EFP, which very specifically is a shape charge that creates a basically molten piece of shrapnel that rips through any vehicle and kills everything in its path. 
this specific uh, tactic and this specific capability came directly from Iran. So my question was always, why are we always dealing with the symptoms and not mm. willing to address the problem? And the analogy I use is like we're putting Band-Aids on hatchet wounds. Well, right. if, if you're just putting Band-Aids on hatchet wounds, you're not willing to address the person holding the hatchet. Oh, you'll blame the hatchet before you blame the person. That's what we're doing with Iran. We're literally not addressing the problem. So that, that has led us into a circumstance where with a lot of money, I mean, our, uh, the last proposal was $95.3 billion. That was to also support the war against Iran. Because all of the war and conflict in the region in Yemen, which I spent a year in Yemen, um, in and around um, Israel, which includes uh, uh, Gaza, which is specifically a campaign that's being uh, conducted now, but also in Lebanon with Hezbollah, all of these proxy elements are being directly supported by Iran. Well, we just lost three service members from a National Guard unit in Georgia. Like these National Guards men and women, two of the casualties were women, did not join the military to get killed in their bunk in the mm. middle of a crap hole in, on the border of Syria and Jordan. They did not volunteer for that. They volunteered to do something and be protected. In my opinion, we are not protecting them because we're not addressing the problem. It's like the 3,000-pound gorilla in the corner that nobody wants to pay attention to. It's like, okay, well, the detriment is it's going to bite us in the butt. Eventually, this will become such a, an issue, and we will have a catastrophic situation, maybe even another 9-11, and then we'll finally pay attention and be like, why didn't we just address this in the first place? I mean, we've been dealing with Iran since the 70s, and, and we have not addressed that problem. So maybe this is a... Not a fair question, but why? Why haven't? Why has that problem not been addressed? Why are we ignoring the three thousand pound gorilla? There's a whole bunch of complexity to that. Just the simple answer is um, one: they're on the verge of being a nuclear superpower. Two: they have mm -hmm. a lot of influence in the region. Three: oil and gas is a uh, is a part of this, um, and and the size and mass of Iran. Iran's been in conflict with everybody in the region forever. I mean, this is not nothing new. I mean, before we invaded Iraq, there was the Iraq-Iran war. And so it, most of it has to do with their geographical influence. But I mean, people say, well, why are we, why are we partnering with the same people and the same problems like Saudi Arabia? 19 of the hijackers on 9-11 were from Saudi Arabia. Um, Osama bin Laden's father was one of the wealthiest construction companies in Saudi Arabia, and it funded the campaign that eventually led to 9-11. Mm -hmm. But they're our biggest ally. Why? Because Saudi Arabia is Sunni and Iran is Shia. There is mm -hmm. a deeply seated cultural war that is going on. And we know if we went into battle with Iran, which wouldn't take long, by the way, it just, it just wouldn't geographically, they're very constrained. But if we did, we would ignite a global um, campaign for the entire region that will set the world on fire. And so wow. that's part of it. But in my opinion, there's a buffer. The buffer is, hey, strategically target their infrastructure. We said we were going to retaliate. And you know what we did after those three service members were killed in Jordan on the border with Syria? We hit a whole bunch of shipping containers that were empty in the middle of the desert. <laughs> yeah. We didn't retaliate. We didn't, we didn't reduce their uh, capacity or their capability for conducting operations. And how I know is I said before the three casualties happened, I said we eventually are going to lose service members because at that point we had already been attacked 75 times. We had a contractor who died of a heart attack and we had many more that were injured. And it, it, now my prediction is we will not do anything again until we again lose many, many more Americans. And that will happen. Unfortunately, I oh. believe it will happen. We're taking a quick break to tell you guys about Rocasa Organics. You know, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, how much we love Rocasa. They, since the beginning of their company, have been on a mission to provide safe, natural, non-toxic products that you can trust. And they do. This is a company with natural products that really work. And what I love about them is that it's a one-stop shop. So they have everything that you need for your health. They have everything that you need for keeping your home clean, for 
like body care and all of that. So that's what I love about it is that I don't need to go shopping at a bunch of different places or order from a bunch of different places. I just need to check Brocasa. So some of the things I've been loving lately are their laundry detergent. I've been using that and their dishwasher detergent. I never thought I'd find like a super natural and effective dishwasher detergent, but now I have and it works. So you guys, no matter what you're needing, you need to check out rowcastleorganics.com and enter the code BOOMCLAP to save 20% off your first order. This is a bit of a shift, but you had brought up that you went into the military because you had a fighting spirit and you were raised by a man who raised you into a good man. Um, This is a topic, Cecily, and I've talked about a few times on the podcast Mm -hmm. with a few people, but what advice would you have for fathers raising their boys today? Yeah, um, a lot of, I was just talking to a friend of mine, Mike Pfeiffer from Last Line of Defense last night. And we were talking about fatherhood and how it's really good. And, and he was telling me how a lot of the things that he was going to do with his young son, who's a year old, he was taking those lessons learned from me and what he was seeing that I was doing with my children hmm. from social media. And this is a friend of mine. And, and what I realized in you know, a similar analogy across the board is many men who become fathers or boys that become fathers, young men that become fathers, they don't have a model for what a good father is because many of them didn't have a good father. They didn't have a father or a figure in their lives at all. So the best I can guess is people are picking up what I'm laying down from my experiences off a of social. And that, that is hard to swallow, but also it's, I'm accepting of that reality because that's the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. If people are finding their news from TikTok, they're certainly going to be influenced by men who are raising boys to <clears> be men. And, and so one, I always want to be a good influence in that realm. Like I, I want to educate people and it's the only reason I do it. I, I have no interest outside of that to put my children on any social media platform because um, I, I just don't like, I'm, I'm not entertaining people with my children, mm-hmm. Yeah. but with that being said, I do think it's important to acknowledge that a lot of men don't know how to raise boys into men. The first piece of advice I'd say is don't be afraid to be a man. Um, with that being said, <laughs> people don't, men don't know what being a man is. And so if you think being a man is being tough, yeah, that's part of it. But are, are you hugging your children? Like I did a post on hugging my, ch- my child. And, and if I feel like there's a disconnect or something's going on, or even post-punishment, I make sure to reinforce with my children, both my daughter and my son, that I love them. And what I'm doing and how I'm disciplining them is because of that love. Because I never want to leave them with the thought or idea that daddy's just mean or daddy just did this mm-hmm. for, for, for no reason at all. When I did that post, people were like, oh my God, like this is so impactful. And I'm like, holy crap, like it's, it's impactful to tell people to love their children. It is because many men thinking that hugging their children is a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid as a young man or as a man raising children or even being single or even being uh, with a spouse and not having children of being empathetic. And, and it's, it's a constant battle for me because I, I'm weighing on the right side of masculinity, but I also was raised by my single mom who taught me how, how to be kind, how to be compassionate, mm-hmm. how to be empathetic. You could be both. So we, we, we are put into, we are, we have put men and women into categories where it's like, you, you can only be this one thing because that's what you are. And that's not the, the truth. And so that's the second piece. The last piece of advice I would give is I would say, your children need you to create structure for them. And so we live in a world now where we think we're offending everybody, including um, our children, when we tell them what they need to be or who they need to be or what they need to be. My son came to me and he, he, was, trying to, um, he was trying to put on his sister's shoes and they were literally little sandals. And I said, no, 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 your, your foot won't fit in that. Why? Because you're a boy, you got bigger feet, which is true. 
You got my, I wear size 13. Uh, my spouse wears size like five. I don't even know five, six. So uh, um, when he tried to do that, I told him, I'm like, no, 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 dude, that's not what you do. Like those are girl shoes. And he, this, this, my son's three years old. I sit on the kitchen floor and I look him and I go, so do you like being a boy or like being a girl? And he goes, I like being a boy. I said, do you like boots or do you like glittery sandals? And I'm not, I'm not being biased. I'm just saying, what do you like? He goes, I like boots. I'm like, right. You like boots. Why do you like boots? I go outside. I play. I want boots. Yeah. These are for your sister. These are for, for you. You're a boy. She's a girl. And he goes, oh, I get it. And I imagine in a world where you created confusion, where you sat down with your son and you said, you know, son, you're three. You can be anything you want. And I'm not talking about if my son wants to be Spider-Man one day and a dinosaur the next day, and if, and if he wants to be a ballerina the third day, that's fine. What I'm saying is I know at his core what his identity needs to be. Mm-hmm. He needs to be a young boy to decide to become a, a young man. If he wants to be gay or whatever when he's a young man or, or, or a, a young boy, at, at the age that's appropriate, do you, man. Live your best life. But it's my job to create a construct and to not have him flapping in his mind. And, mm-hmm. and my dad did it subtly and he didn't do it intentionally because he was just being a man. And so now we have to do it intentionally because we're so influenced by all of these things. Don't be afraid to raise boys to be men and girls to be women. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and I'm not talking just about the, the, the sex component or the I'm – I'm talking about the identity component. Like telling your boy to hold a door for a, a little girl or a woman, there's nothing wrong with that. Telling him to have manners, telling your daughter to be a specific way, there's nothing wrong with that. My, my grandma did that for me. My mom did that for me. My dad did that for me. And we need to be more intentional with that. Um, th- that's the top three. There's obviously more to that. Um, mm. But that's, that's the best I can, I could put out. Intentional is, is the word, right? I mean, there's no way to parent in this day and age unless you're being intentional, just because it is a super confusing world that doesn't like boundaries and parameters for anyone. When we know that from a very, very early age, that's what kids need is those boundaries in order to feel safe and to feel like they have a handle on things, which is what anyone wants. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's very good. And also as far as like boys opening doors for girls, like I'm a very independent woman that can do lots of things for myself. But when a man and even better, like a young boy, like I have a 12 year old and a 10 year old boy, if they hold the door open for someone and I see it, there is nothing that makes me feel more proud than watching them do that. And it's such a simple thing, but it's something that just feels right. Like it just feels right to raise boys that understand that part of their role is being that caretaker and that that can look like giving hugs and it can look like other things as well. It's just this huge wide spectrum that they're capable of fulfilling that role. So I really appreciate your guidance on that. That was good. Um, So can we get into preparedness a little bit? (laughs) I know our listeners are going to be really upset if we have you on and don't talk to you at all about preparedness um, because it's a question we get often. I guess, um, why, why would you tell people it's important? Because some people, to start off, don't even think being, quote, prepared is an important topic or something they should be thinking about? Yeah. Um, let me give you a great and recent example. Uh, yesterday, about 75,000 Americans did not have cell phone reception. Yeah. And the entire infrastructure was disrupted. Now, there's a lot of speculation, solar flares versus the CCP versus a software hack. Let's just push all that aside. 75,000 people for the time that their cell phone wasn't working had no ability to call 911 because your cell phone, even in SOS mode, without having reception tethered to a tower, has zero communication capability. So imagine how many people were ill-prepared or not prepared and then had an emergency. Um, That is like a window into the potential world you could live in when simple things like infrastructure collapse. I mean, the FBI director just did a congressional hearing lining out how actively, like right now, the CCP is, the Chinese Communist Party is constantly 
hacking civilian infrastructure. We're not talking about military infrastructure or government infrastructure. We're talking about civilian infrastructure. So we had a buy-in into an idea to optimize mostly our time to make our lives more efficient in outsourcing everything. You outsource your kids' education, your healthcare, and even your security. But we know, because we track the statistics, we, we do it for a living, obviously, that if the police are coming, they're coming too late. Because if you're not your own first response, they're there to collect the information post the attack, the murder already happening. If your house is burning down to the ground and you identify that, then the firefighters who show up are just getting it together to keep it from not affecting anybody else. So we have to be prepared, especially in a world where we've taken our self-reliance and outsourced it to everybody else. So there are many statistics. There's, there's many proof of this. But obviously with the pandemic and then civil unrest and then now infrastructure collapse, there's great examples of why being prepared is a must. And most people think, because they think I'm the crazy Green Beret who talks about being prepared and it has something to do with zombie apocalypse, most people think I'm talking about apocalyptic scenarios. I'm not. 76 people just died in this last winter blast. Last year in Buffalo, New York, 24 people died. A girl died in her, in, in her neighborhood on a city street four minutes from her home inside of a vehicle while she was FaceTiming her family. She perished from carbon monoxide poison because oh, the storm yeah. locked her vehicle in. Yep. She was trying to stay warm, and she went to sleep and never woke up again. This happens every day in our country. And if you look at the statistics, trending are all the bad. Murder, violent crime, suicide, drug overdose, all of them are going up. And that should make you pay attention because I'm not talking about being prepared for the apocalypse. I'm talking about being prepared for the accident. I'm talking about being prepared for the natural disaster. And I think if we could just bridge that gap and make people understand that, then they would begin a journey, which I think is a fulfilling journey of creating a lifestyle of preparedness, which is what I always recommend. Well, yeah. and it's good to feel empowered in that way too, like that you do have the capability to handle these things where life does not go as planned. But so much of what I see is that there has been so many institutions and organizations created around making it so that people are not dependent on themselves. You know, like it's almost like if something happens, let's say, you know, a car accident or something. It's like they almost don't want you helping too much because you could get in the way of the professionals. Um, and, you know, that's just one example, but you see it a lot. And it's like, man, have we gotten to this point where everything is so regulated and everything is so, you know, that people feel like they can't even, you know, if that's not what they do professionally, they can't participate. So I like the work that you're doing where it removes that and be like, actually, Everyone is capable of, you know, handling a first aid situation if they have the proper training, like, and examples like that. But I feel like as a society, and I don't know if it's worse where I am, but it's like, people are encouraged, like not in a way to help you like, yes, we love those hero stories, but also don't you dare get in the way. So it's very interesting. Yeah, we're, we're in a battle of self-reliance and ironically, the way the system optimizes and speaking of the government and the institutions that are supporting the government, the way they optimize is taking more control mm -hmm. because the more control they have, the more power and influence they have. And the more power and influence you have, the more that your liability to their empowerment. So it, it's, it's a conundrum, but it's, it's also very eye opening because I think the founding father fathers had this idea that government would stay out of your life, afford you opportunities, um, provide support, but allow you with a left and right limit to thrive. And we have completely taken that idea and plugged in and connected the umbilical cord. And all I'm asking is for people to cut the umbilical cord just a little bit. You know, if you, mm -hmm. if you get all your food from one source, let's call it your local Walmart or your local Target or your local grocery store, what happens when the infrastructure in a small way collapses? The truck driver um, 
that drives the food to supply the two-week supply in Walmart decides they're not going to do that anymore. They strike. COVID-19, whatever it is, how are you going to eat? Do you know where that food comes from? So my freezer and my family is fed by everything that I killed myself. Well, my, that's, uh, I don't know about that killing thing. Well, everything that you're eating is (laughs) dead because somebody killed Mm -hmm. it. So you're accepting that that cellophane and that pink gel that you wipe off your meat prior to cooking it is an acceptable reality for your family because of convenience. Well, you know what's convenient for me? Investing a week, a year where I hunt a deer, an elk, and, and whatever extra I can, and I feed my family for an entire year knowing exactly where it came from because it's in the freezer in my garage. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. All the life lessons, all the self-reliance, and all the health benefits are part of that lifestyle. So it's a good step in the right direction. Like You want to start insourcing your own level of preparedness? Start building self-reliance by going procuring your own food. I mean, mm-hmm. is that so radical? I think likely if you ask a lot of people, it would be. But if you just break it down, you're like, oh, I'm doing a lot of positive things to make myself more self-reliant. Yeah, we recently had a conversation with someone else on the podcast. And we talked about the fact like if you have like your own little homestead or hobby farm or whatever, and you grow your own meat and do your own gardening and try to feed your family from the year from either hunting or doing what you do on your farm, you're considered weird. And I've had conversations with people where they're like, oh, like, I don't know how you do that. Or you guys do this or that. And they're like, well, I guess, you know, if things really crash, maybe we can come to you guys and you'll, you'll help us get through. And I'm <laughs> no. like, don't really know what to say in those moments, you know, but it's like, you, you can like even, you know, people live in apartments and townhouses and everyone has a different uh, living situation. But there's always little things that we can do, right? And that's the thing is there's so many people who are just choosing to do nothing at all because they, they really truly feel and believe that they just don't have to, which, you know, it's different. Everyone thinks so differently. It kind of blows yeah, my mind if, sometimes when I think of that. If, if I mean, and typically the, the way it works is People only identify the problem after it's almost too late. Yep. Right? Yeah. They they don't change course unless it's a catastrophe. I mean, unless that's analogous to everything in our lives, right? You don't you you don't get out of the relationship until the tipping point, right? Mm-hmm. Things fall apart, and you're like, oh man, I should have got out of that years ago. It's like, yeah, you, you should have, but you didn't. Mm-hmm. And so, all I'm advocating for is, if you're going to prepare, you realize there is going to potentially be a time and place. If you prepare for the worst case scenario, which is not that difficult, then you're covering down on everything in between. So if, for example, in first aid, if you know how to stop the bleed, which is the worst case scenario, an extremity bleed from a compound fracture, for example. Well, guess what? When your kid has a minor cut in their backyard Mm -hmm. playing with the hobby knife, well, then you know how to address that because you understand the principles of stopping the bleed. But if you don't have any of those skill sets because you've blown it off and said, well, the hospital is where we do all this. The, the, the EMS professional that shows up is where we do all this. What happens if I take that and it's not in your backyard and it's in the back country on a UTV yeah, mm-hmm. that rolls over and crushes your kid's arm and they're bleeding out of their, their brachial um, artery? And then, and then what you know, which is a couple hour block of instruction that you have invested in TikTok that same day, you could have had education on, could have saved your child's life. It's like, what? Like, and I'm the weird one. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm the weird guy. Um, yeah, yeah I, I just hope people, there's barriers of entry and they're not that complicated and they're not that scary. If we just are willing to open our eyes to this, then we might see the light and it might improve our lives overall. Yeah. I like how you went working backwards there, like starting from the hardest, then you know how to do the easiest. I don't, didn't really think of it that way, but that's a really good way to look at it because it's just as easy to learn the hard part and then you automatically know the easier part. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like I talk about CPR sometimes because that's something I think about having been an ICU nurse and watch people come in and, you know, their family could have given them CPR, but they didn't because they don't know it. And it's a struggle to get people to even want to learn that because I think one, the responsibility that comes with it. And I'm not sure if that's a component with preparedness is, People sometimes don't want to learn because then they feel responsible and they should have known and they maybe didn't do the right thing. 
Can you address that a little bit? Yeah, it has to do, there's two components to it. It has to do with arrogance and ego. A lot of it is arrogance. A lot of it is ego. Sometimes it's combined. But we've created a culture where getting involved is more of a liability than not. But I always tell people, what if that involvement includes somebody that you love? Like Mm -hmm. the the CPR skill set, how to apply an AED. I mean, how many people died from cardiovascular issues that could have been saved based Mm -hmm. on a simple machine that is nearly everywhere that you have no understanding of how it works? So if I put your family in that situation or your spouse or your loved one in that situation, it tends to change your mindset. And a lot of this has started culturally, but it also is part of institutions compartmentalizing and taking back what's theirs. Like when I started teaching Stop the Bleed, for example, when I was in the military, I learned combat life-saving skills. I, I put tourniquets on people who've been shot in combat. I've, I've done um, crazy things that I never thought I would do ever in the military, in the medical field. I'm not a medic. I'm like the dumbest of the Green Berets. Like I'm, I'm the 18 Bravo, like the weapons guy. Like the weapons guy is like the dumbest guy on the team. He's the guy who to explain that. things with rocks. <laughs> yeah, he's like the smash with rocks. Give me the gun, I'll fix it. But you have the 18 Delta, who's the very intelligent person who understands all the complexities of first aid. Well, if he teaches me and cross trains me a little bit about the basics, especially when it comes to maybe he's the casualty, and I need to save his life, that is going to make everybody better. That culture is very different because we're cross-training and we're building off each other's assets. There is no liabilities because we are making each other better. The, the greatest example of this is when I started teaching Stop the Bleed, experts, mostly who belong to institutions and mostly who had businesses and were compartmentalized, thought I was taking away something from them. Because I'm like, well, why are you teaching these guys for free? Or Mike, you shouldn't be teaching Stop the Bleed to, to these civilians. And I'm like, what? what? Like, <laughs> break that down for me. Well, we go through robust training on how to stop the bleed. I'm like, watch a YouTube video and learn how to build a Tesla in my garage. But you're telling me I can't teach a cognitive and intelligent person how to apply a tourniquet, a piece of material that, by the way, when I first came in the military, was a cravat and a stick. You're telling me I can't teach them how to stop the bleed, and, and that's going to somehow interrupt your business plan. So when we bridge that, fast forward five, six, seven years, we teach more civilians in the country than any other company in first aid. We provide more first aid equipment than any other company in the country in first aid. Why? Because we had to change the culture. It wasn't about like marketing saying you need this. We had to change the culture and say, this is, this is what you need to do. This is part of the process because this is the right thing to do. Um, last example is um, when you look at the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan idea is if you see somebody who's in an accident, you go, oh, because of the liability, I don't want to be involved. In some states, including Utah, there's a Good Samaritan law where if you blow off that, you potentially could be charged. Yeah. Likely, based on the statistics that I've read, it's never been actually charged in a court of law because it's very hard to prove. Um, uh, you know, somebody bypasses somebody in an accident, they're like, oh, I was scared because I didn't know what was going on. And so it's hard to prove. But what I tell people is if you're learning a skill set that we're giving you or that somebody else gave you and it could save somebody's life, you have a responsibility as a good person to treat and help them. And so we teach responsible citizen courses every Wednesday for free to the public. We have 50, 60, 100 people show up to get a class on how to stop the bleed, on how to block off a scene in an emergency, how to disaster prep. Because we expect if you have the skill sets, you be the good person in your community when everybody else is filming on their cell phone or bypassing Mm -hmm. it, that you're the person who's addressing the issue. And, and it's challenging, but we've accepted that challenge. It's, I mean, the ultimate, um, the ultimate purpose that I find in all of this is it's difficult. And if it wasn't difficult, I likely wouldn't be as invested, but, mm-hmm. but it's something that we have to change. We have to talk about it. We have to advocate. We have to push people. And that's okay because some people don't realize that until it's too late. And I hope 
I hope it's not too late. That's excellent. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, I don't know. Do you have any other questions, Cecily? I have a lot of questions, but we could be here all day. So I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> I would like to talk about the one last thing you said. We talked about, you know, raising boys, but as far as raising girls, like Rita had messaged me this morning and said, one thing I'd love to ask him about oh, is yes. like helping girls to be, you know, prepared to essentially physically defend themselves or is that where you were going with it Rita? Yeah yeah I have two beautiful girls a 13 year old and an almost 10 year old and I feel like they're really vulnerable and how do you teach little girls to physically physically defend themselves I guess not just yeah physically yeah it's or what's the best way what's the best thing to teach them yeah we're we're big advocates for training parents and also children to be prepared and and part of that avocation is looking at the differences between men and women um a 120 pound woman versus me being 240 pounds would not stop me in any way from doing harm i don't care if she's got a black belt in every martial art it's not going to it's not going to stop somebody who has potential malice intent and so what I tell women, uh, the technical skills that you have to include the tools that are at your disposal could mean the difference between life and death. So a lot of women say, oh, I don't need to learn about the firearm because my husband carries. Mm-hmm. Well, if your husband carries, you're not as exploitable when you're alone. So you're likely not to become a victim when you're with your husband because a bad guy targets you when you're alone at the ATM machine, alone mm-hmm. at the gas station, alone at the bar, whatever that is, you're not going to be vulnerable. But when you are vulnerable, do you have the necessary skill sets to protect yourself? And the difference between your life and your death could be the training, the advocating of that concealed carry firearm and your skill sets. So with that being said, children are at the bottom Percentage, the bottom 10% of people who die in catastrophe. That's both man made and natural disaster in every circumstance. That's a boat sinking. That's a building on fire. That is an active shooter. They're at the bottom. The reason they're at the bottom is because one, they don't have the cognitive capability developed in their prefrontal cortex. They don't have the experience and they don't have the physical capability. With all those things being said, That's why it's so important for parents to understand their situation and how to negate that risk. Like I hear people all the time talk about how they'll tactically engage the bad guy, shoot, move, communicate, all this high speed and sexy stuff. But then I say, are you a father? Like, yeah. Okay. Tell me how you're going to do the same thing with your child. Well, I don't know. I'll just pick up my child and I get it done. No, 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 no. Because when you break that first shot, or you yell at the suspect who, before the gunfight, you're going to put your kid into fight or flight. They're going to transition into a sympathetic nervous response. They're going to freeze. They're going to lock. They might be on the ground cowering in fear, sucking on their thumb, not even realizing what's going on because they're in a different neurological response. So you break that shot off, the middle ear of a woman, the middle ear of a child has a registry once registered at a certain decibel range, we'll put them in a fight or flight scenario. It's why women who are being yelled at by men aggressively, they lock up. It's why people who are around firearms, especially women who hear a certain range of decibel, they shut down. So we have to weigh all these factors. The most significant tool you can give your child, because it's not the martial art. I mean, it's important for discipline. It's important for capability as they grow. It's not the, the kicking of the groin or the grabbing of the groin because none of that will stop an attacker that wants to maliciously attack your child. An 11-year-old girl was just killed in Texas. From her school bus to her home in a short period of time and they just found her floating in a river. <sighs> deceased. How does that happen in our country? Because evil people exist. How do mm-hmm. we negate that? Well, we put mechanisms in place to protect what we love most in the most vulnerable population, which is our children. We also teach them the most important skill set they can learn, situational awareness and human behavior. Because if they know how to pay attention because they're not on TikTok 
walking arbitrarily from their bus stop that they do every single day, complacent, walking to their apartment complex, and their heads up, head on a swivel, and paying attention, then they could see the danger before it interacts with them in real and close time, and it's too late. In addition to that, there's tools and there's mechanisms, including SOS devices. If if that child had the ability to even not get on the phone and call her parents, not run and scream and tell an adult because they were taken by surprise, but have the ability via a tracker in their backpack, a tracker in their clothing, a passive tracker on their cell phone, then there would have been a chance for that child to be rescued and survived and survive. Because at the moment that there was distress, the SOS was launched, or at the moment that that track and breadcrumb wasn't in the place it was supposed to be, it would alert it and notify their parents to be able to get there. And for most lazy-ass parents, they'll say, well, I don't know, this is too much. But you don't care about your children. You don't care about the, the existing and existential threats that exist to not you because you're capable, but to your child who's the most vulnerable, then you don't care. And, and, it, and I'm not selling anything. This isn't fear-mongering. There is no chorus. There is no product that I'm selling. There is many ways to think about this. And, and the ultimate engagement is you have to be proactive. You have to be proactive in your child's life. Or you could write it off. You could trust it to faith, to hope, to prayers. But that is not going to protect your, your child in the worst case scenario against an evil attacker who wants to kill your children. In mm-hmm. Texas alone, there's 113 children from last year that are still missing. That yeah. statistic, I'm going to do a show on it um, soon. That statistic makes me nauseous to think mm-hmm. about because the amount of pedophiles that exist in this country, the amount of evil people that exist in this country with criminal backgrounds that are capable of hurting your child are many. And that's the war who you're against. And your children can't fight that war. You have to fight it for them. Yeah. You know, what's so interesting is the contrast that we see right now is that people are like, kids need independence, kid needs freedom. And I agree. Like, I really do. I think that's part of what makes them stronger. But not before learning, like you said, that situational awareness and giving them those tools to keep them safe. Like, it's like, yeah, let them, you know, bike into town and go to the store or whatever. But do are they actually prepared to do that? You know, like mentally, are they prepared to do that? And if something were to go wrong, like what's your plan? Um, we learned actually, this was just a, like a little personal story. A f- couple months ago, we were out walking around a lake in, and it was dark. And it's like a small, small village essentially. And we're there all the time. And there's like this loop that goes all the way around. And our boys wanted to go all the way around. But my husband and my daughter and I were like, we'll just take the short way. You guys go ahead and we'll meet you at the end. Well, they misunderstood our instructions, I guess. And they didn't go all the way around. They went halfway around and then down into like a little lagoon area. And they thought we would meet them there. And we were panicked because they don't have, they didn't have like a cell phone or anything with them. It was pitch black. There was a few people out, but not many. And so like my husband had to go running all the way around one end. I was trying to stay in one spot and asking everyone who came, like, have you seen the two little boys? Like, it was horrifying. And I like to think I'm a pretty, you know, proactive person. But I was like, wow, this thing, thankfully, it all turned out fine. And we were, they were there. But it's like that situation made me realize how important it is to have a plan always and to make sure that everyone in the family understands what that plan is because it can so easily go wrong. I mean, I was, it's glacier fed. It was the middle of winter. And I was thinking either they're in the lake, someone fell in and the other one tried to help and now it's too late or someone took them because it was not so long that, you know, we were about to call the police truly but it was long enough that every single horrible scenario just goes through your mind and you're like, wow, this would have been my fault. This absolutely would have been my fault. And that's a horrible realization as a parent. Yeah, it's very scary. Yeah. All right. Well, Mike, we really appreciate you coming on. This was more than we expected. I feel like Mm -hmm. we got a lot of preparedness in, which I didn't know if we'd get to. And you really gave us some insight into the first question that we asked, which is just... I don't know, that has been on my mind so much is how do we support our military? Because I really am like proud to be an American and I do love our military and I'm thankful for people willing to 
make that sacrifice. But man, with the corruption in government and things, sometimes it's hard to just make those things mesh up. So anyway, you can tell people where they can find you um, and then we'll wrap up. Yeah, it, our website is philcraftsurvival.com. Um, the most active uh, social media platform I'm on is YouTube. Um, that YouTube channel is Mike Glover Actual. I do a, a weekly show, sometimes two times a week. I'll drop an episode today, for example, on the cell phone uh, collapse. Um, I also have a Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Mike Glover. And a lot of the things that I talk about are deemed radical by social media professionals. And so there's certain things that I can't talk about that I talk about often on that. And then um, lastly, I have a podcast called the Mike Force Podcast, where I interview people in survival, people in business, um, and people who are military veterans. And so that's available on YouTube and wherever podcasts are found. That's awesome. Obviously, guys, check that out. I think you got from this interview how helpful all of that would be. So check that out. And if you want to find Rita and I outside the podcast, as always, you can find us on Instagram at boomclappodcast, or you can find me individually at cecily.dickey or my website, thegracetogrow.com. And you can find me, Rita, at ritarogersco.com or ritarogersco on Instagram. Thanks for listening.